0: Well, hello everybody and welcome back to GUcast in here at Peter McCallum Cancer I Centre I can't in believe it. We're back. It's been a while.
1: Did you get sick of wandering around with all our podcast equipment?
0: It was quite enjoyable. <laughs> um, I must say the last three months was mostly on sabbatical, wandering around Europe mostly yeah. and posting podcasts. I hope uh, our viewers enjoyed some of those podcasts from around Europe, from the APCCC, from Hamburg, from Amsterdam, from London. And uh, it was nice. It was nice to be out and about a little bit, I must say. But it's, it's yeah. nice to be back in the GUcast studio here at yeah, Peter again. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Good, and nice to see you.
1: <laughs> you had a few of your different co-hosts around uh, Lugano. Yes, and, uh,
0: correct, we had some great co-hosts. Daria Tilke stepped yeah, in very uh, very uh, expertly, but uh, yeah, we all missed you. I had lots of requests. A- Where's and, and
1: your most important co-host, Michael Hoffman?
0: So we have a few uh, friends of the podcast back in the studio today uh, to welcome ourselves back to uh, Peter Mack. Um, We have uh, Michael Hoffman, Professor Michael Hoffman, and uh, Associate Professor Arun Azad, uh, Chief of our PSMA Program and uh, Medical Oncologist, leading many of our prostate cancer trials. Michael and uh, Arun, welcome back. Good morning, Declan. Great to be back.
2: Thanks, Declan. Thanks for now. Always a pleasure.
1: It's nice to kind of have a roundtable chat. No one's zooming in today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's weird in studio. We don't have headphones on. It's just like people are stepping around. The Although places. the days of Zoom are almost over.
1: And, you know, you're, you're you we're off wandering to conferences. And yeah, yeah. Everything's getting Everyone's back to normal. Live, yeah. There were
3: 30,000 people
0: at ASCO. 30,000
3: oh. people. In person? In person. Really?
0: That's like ASCO as
3: big as it gets, isn't it? No, no. It's usually like 40,000 really? plus. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. it was big.
0: That's one of the reasons why we're we're here today. We want to talk about that, don't
1: we? ASCO, big conference. And I think, Michael, you might have had the fastest trip to the US I've ever heard about.
3: It was ridiculous.
1: (laughs) Do you remember it?
3: I had three nights. It wasn't long (laughs) enough. And I just arrived the day before my talk. I arrived like 2pm and then the talk was 8am the following morning. In retrospect, always at an extra day before when you're giving a big plenary talk.
0: And, and Chicago is pretty far away from Australia. You know, things are far away from Australia when your travel agent says, Well, you can go this way around the world to get there, <laughs> or you can go that the way other way. The <laughs> way <laughs> <right>. <laughs> and this so time I so. took your
3: advice, Declan, and it, oh, it was a long way to travel. You went through I the Middle East,
0: and, uh, and I yeah.
3: actually prefer the LA route just so well, much shorter.
0: Although you could have talked to um, uh, Ian Davis, our colleague and friend yeah. of the podcast, Ian Davis, who while you were still trekking in luxury back across the, the Atlantic to get to Australia, he was uh, still stuck in L.A. with cancelled flights. And oh. <laughs>
3: Actually, Lots of Aussies oh. were running into flight problems. Yeah. Uh, so that whole system's not working very well yet. Yeah.
0: International travel.
1: But, you know, I was very impressed because you rushed back just in time for our public holiday weekend so you could take your family camping.
3: That's true. That I arrived cool? back Thursday night and then yeah. Friday morning we left for a weekend away.
1: Amazing.
0: Fantastic. So yeah, we want to talk about a few things. Great to be back, great to be catching up, but uh, uh, yeah, big ASCO meeting. Um, although people were saying that it wasn't a huge GU meeting, uh, a run, there wasn't a huge amount of headlines, we didn't have big things in the plenary this year, uh, but there were still still some highlights in the prostate cancer session. I think that's what we want to talk about today, isn't that right?
2: Yeah, I think um, Lutition PSMA was certainly the probably the major... Uh, major talking point out of it, not necessarily big new data, but certainly some interesting sessions and um, uh, we'll discuss today. Excellent.
0: So uh, among those uh, in the oral abstract session was Michael himself, Renu, presented a, a very keenly anticipated abstract. It was the uh, OS data, the overall survival data from the therapy trial. Um, so that was certainly one of the, b- the big highlights from that session. Um, so let's hear about that first of all. You presented the OS data. Um, do you want to give us a quick summary on that?
3: Yeah, so this was a three-year follow-up from the therapy trial, a ANZUP designed and conducted trial run at 10 sites around Australia, randomising men to letitian PSMA 617 or carbazitaxel. And we've already reported the primary outcomes in our Lancet paper uh, last year, uh, and we really showed improvements in the primary endpoint with double the PSA 50% response rate, Uh, And some people criticise that and say, oh, it was just a PSA response rate, but it wasn't because the secondary endpoints looked at resist response, which was 49 compared to 24%. Radiographic PFS, another big difference, hazard ratio uh, 0.64, and uh, less toxicity, less grade three to four toxicity, better patient reported outcomes in many domains. So really met all the primary and secondary endpoints. And the only endpoint that hasn't been reported to date is the big one of overall survival. uh, that was the really the primary purpose of this update, uh, and we did not show an improvement in overall survival compared to carbazitaxel, which is the headline news. Uh, but There's a lot of caveats here, which is that power study was not powered for OS. A lot of patients accessed lutetium PSMA after carbazitaxel or carbazitaxel after lutetium PSMA. So it was really a trial of the addition of lutetium PSMA. This was not replacing carbazitaxel, It was the addition of lutetium PSMA into that castration-resistant metastatic disease treatment options. And when you add it, uh, I think you do improve OS. You just sort of dilute it with all this uh, crossover. Uh, Our median survival, I think, was around 18 and a half months in either arm. If you compare that to the CARD trial of carbazitaxel, it's quite a bit longer uh, in both arms. And I think that this just reflects that we're adding uh, lutetium. Also, we're selecting patients a bit differently than the, than the CAR trial with PSMA and FDG-PET. Another purpose of this abstract was to report the overall survival of the patients we didn't treat. So these are patients, they met all the eligibility criteria. They were suitable for carbazitaxel, but then they were excluded because they had either low PSMA expression or signs of FDG-positive PSMA-negative disease, and those patients had an overall survival of 11 months. And so that was a big difference between the randomised arm was more 18 to 19 months. Uh, so it just tells us more about the imaging phenotype and how it's important, and if you've got particular imaging features, you're prognostically much worse off, and there was another very interesting abstract that I'm sure we'll discuss as well, looking at the imaging biomarkers from the VISION trial. Fantastic. Uh, th-
1: it's good, isn't it? Because, I mean, now that this data is really matured, it, it really kind of stamps Lutetian PSMA as a very good option uh, for patients in this setting. And I think what we're beginning to understand is, is selection of patients, which is, which is important.
3: Yeah, I think, I think we talk about, you know, there's only two things that matter. That's what Vinay would say. You either need to <laughs> live longer or live better. And uh, I think adding Lutetian PSMA 617 definitely falls into the living better yeah. Uh, class compared to carbazitaxel. it's really a a walk in the park for the patient. And putting my physician hat back on, and maybe a can comment, but you know my perception is when patients come for lutetium PSMA treatment, they they really describe the toxicities from docetaxel or carbazitaxel and it really knocks patients around. And then during the course of lutetium therapy, they just describe how this therapy is unbelievably well tolerated and how it rapidly improves symptoms such as pain so quality of life is so much better and I think there are some analogies compared to let's say docetaxel versus enzalutamide or abiraterone in the castration sensitive space uh, there's not a big difference or any difference necessarily in os but one's clearly way better tolerated mm. and that's where we are with letitia we just have a vastly superior product for the patient.
0: So I run medical oncologists looking after these sorts of patients and you do have options in front of you when you've got a patient, progressive MC or PC, who's suitable for cabazitaxel. Um, what's your take on the OS data from therapy? Were you surprised? Uh, what difference does it make?
2: Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, I think that there's been incorrect interpretation of the, the data suggesting that there isn't a survival benefit with lutetium based on therapy. But, of course, the study wasn't designed to do that. It's a 200-patient study. You're not going to see an overall survival benefit with that. Um, I, I think that the points Michael made about the primary endpoints and other secondary endpoints are all, are all valid. There's no doubt it's a well-tolerated and active treatment. In terms of overall survival, I, I look at it differently. I, I, I don't look at it – I mean, I think there was some interpretation was that, oh, lutetium's not, not making live, people live longer. But in actual fact, is actually a very good drug. Yes, it's toxic. Uh, although probably better tolerated than docetaxel in most men, but it's a good treatment. It's very underutilized. If you look at the data globally, extremely underutilized. Uh, you know, our colleagues in, who treat breast cancer laugh at us and say, how can you leave life-prolonging therapies on the shelf? We use eight, nine, ten lines of therapy for hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, and you don't even use docetaxel or cabazitaxel. So cabazitaxel is actually a good drug. It's, it, is, it can be toxic for sure, but uh, it, you know, I look at it from that perspective is that, that when you actually put it up, lutetium against a very active control arm... In a, in a small phase two, relatively small phase two, you didn't see an overall survival benefit. But I don't think that means that lutetium is not active or not well-tolerated or not a, not a, um, a, not a, a viable option. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, so I think actually the way I look at it is to say that lute, this, this study, we already knew lutetium is active and better than cabazitaxel in many domains. But cabazitaxel is still a very good drug, so keep using it um and i know michael we we sort of we laugh and have this conversation that michael will get referred patients in for lutetium psma and by a medical oncologist and actually convince the patient to have chemotherapy in some situations to the to the chagrin of the medical oncologist and michael as a nuclear <laughs> medicine physician is uh, is convincing them but it's it's actually a very good treatment option still and i think that that's the story out of i take a slightly different view or that's the way i interpret the therapy os data but Michael what I what I
0: want to ask you about is the fact that there was such a good PSA response uh, in, in the initial data and as you say resist response um, and so how why does that not turn into an OS is it purely because of the the power of the trial or do we looking more broadly in prostate cancer just have to remind ourselves that PSA response is not a good surrogate for maybe more meaning, meaningful long-term endpoints do you think if the trial was bigger powered or if there was some sort of lack of access to crossover to lutetium that perhaps the PSA response would have turned into an OAS
3: yeah look I think PSA is actually a very good biomarker and I think it did translate directly to a improvement in radiographic measures so that's tumor shrinkage tumor progression either through resist responses or radiographic PFS so it was not just PS that PSA advantage correlated directly with you know radiographic PFS Uh so I think it is the crossover, and also patients dropped out. We had 16 patients dropping out in the carbazitaxel arm post randomization So they were randomised to carbazitaxel, and 15 said, no, nope, I'm take out of this study, and that was because they wanted to access off-trial lutetium. But we had an intention to treat analysis. So we were very pure. These patients were analysed as if they had carbazitaxel, even if they had lutetium. And in the lutetium arm, zero dropouts. Everyone randomised to lutetium, wanted to have lutetium. And then there's the crossover post protocol. So you need to murk in all of that. I, I think also we need to be careful about what Kaplan Meyer survival curves show us. They do show us the median. And I think we're going to see some more data out of vision and therapy, deep diving, because what we see in therapy and clinical practice, I think there's about a ten to twenty percent group of patients who really have extraordinary responses to lutetium. They have very deep rapid reductions and even three four years later we're giving them cycle 10 of lutetium cycle 11 and some of these men were dying at the time of coming uh, for the lutetium treatment i think they're missed on the kaplan-meyer survival curve kaplan-meyer kind of reduces you to the median and these are the outliers and the kaplan-meyer curve being a median doesn't take into account the outliers so you need to shift the whole sort of patient population up to move the median and if you have 10 percent on the bottom to flip it, if you had super progressors on the top, you would miss them too. You can miss these outliers with Kaplan-Meier statistics.
0: Yeah, very good.
1: Um, Michael and Aaron, you know, there have been a lot of comparisons made between vision and therapy. Um, and, of course, like you both said, therapy wasn't powered to show an OS uh, difference. Have there, has this new longer-term data brought out anything new in that field between vision and, and therapy? Have there been any more similarities or differences observed?
3: Uh, well, we in toxicity long term toxicities. When we started this treatment, people were worried would we get myelodysplasia or, or leukemia, and with three years follow up, not a single episode of, you know, any secondary cancers or other unforeseen, uh, you know, toxicity. So this is very promising or, or reassuring. Yeah. Uh, at vision, you know, there were actually three of the five prostate GU oral presentations were on lutetium PSMA, two from the vision trial and our own therapy trial. Uh, and of the lutetium PSMA trials, we had myself, a nuclear medicine specialist presenting at ASCO, which is a little bit unusual. Uh, second speaker uh, was a medical oncologist. And then we had a radiation oncologist. So we had a really multidisciplinary oral presentations. I thought it, it was just hear, it? Uh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, really good to see.
0: Uh, and to run. so with all that data here, now you have a patient in clinic this morning, uh, MCRPC post-chemo, uh, post-AR pathway inhibitor, suitable for capacitaxel, so fit enough. And let's say you have both options available to you. Let's say there are no reimbursement challenges. We must talk about reimbursement actually as well. Um, does it come down to quality of life? Because I think that is the, the really compelling part of therapy for me was, uh, it w- now we've seen the OS data, it's, it's there's a big OS benefit from both drugs. Uh, but uh, the lutetium didn't exceed uh, uh, cabazitaxel on this small phase two study. But the quality of life stuff uh, that uh, Michael and colleagues reported in The Lancet last year, I thought was very compelling. Uh, How do do you speak to those? No, I agree. I think quality
2: of life is important. And also just um, higher response rates and deeper responses if patients are symptomatic. You know, that's uh, they get improvements in pain and, and other symptoms. I mean, I think people often, patients often think that their quality of life is going to be determined by treatment related toxicity and perhaps when we, you know, that's related, that, that's true for chemotherapy but in actual fact if patients are symptomatic from their cancer that's actually often their biggest determinant of their quality of life and if you improve their symptoms their quality of life improves. Um, I do think one other, one other point that's worth making is that lutetium is clearly very active and clearly has deep Deep responses and, and a majority of patients do respond, especially when you use the therapy, you know, selection, pet selection criteria that, that Michael um, and team have, 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 have developed. Um, but durability of response is still a challenge. Um, and, um, you know, there are, as Michael said, there is a subset who get prolonged, those ones who get deep, men who get deep responses sometimes also get prolonged responses. but Durability of response is a challenge, and and you know when you've already got an agent that in third line setting in therapy has a PSA response rate of 66%, which is kind of unprecedented in terms of PSA response rate. Um, um, you're already actually achieving responses, and a lot of men, um, you know, it's throwing more drugs into the mix, combinations which you know we often do when response rates are low and we're trying to bump up the response rate in oncology, may or may not be the answer. It may, or, you know, biomarkers may or may not be the answer. It might be other radionuclides. It may be, there may be a variety of things we need to do, but durability is the biggest challenge. And that's what I tell patients. I say, look, there's a very good chance you're going to respond to this, but we need to watch you closely because it also, it's possible that as you come into the end of this treatment or soon after, your PSA may start to rise again. And we may need to retreat you or we may need to look at different options. So I think that sort of patient I'd definitely give lutetium, but you have to also counsel them about some of the um, challenges that might lie ahead. And, and I think the durability of response is the big one for me with, with lutetium.
1: That's interesting. Um, the other thing we wanted to touch on was patient selection and biomarkers. Um, so, Michael, in, in the session at, at, at ASCO, um, uh, was there any further information from the VISION trial in terms of the PSMA criteria for selecting patients for, for treatment with lutetium PSMA? Yes,
3: yeah, so the other big presentation was on the PSMA imaging biomarkers from the VISION trial presented by Andy Armstrong from Duke. Uh, so we had a medical oncologist presenting imaging biomarkers and he started his talk by talking about SUV maxes and SUV means and showing us whole-body pets and, Did that make you and proud? how this was done. This was fantastic. <laughs> you know? And at the end of his talk he said, "You know, I mean, the, the take-home message was that SUV mean, which is a measure of the average PSMA intensity. So what you need to do is take your PSMA pet, contour all the chimps using a software package, and then you get the average intensity in all of the tumour. So traditionally, you might just pick the hottest lesion and give an SUV max, which is how we select patients. We go, do you have a lesion above liver or above SUV max 20 in the therapy trial? That's really easy to do. Anyone can do that. But contouring all of tumour requires fancier software. The average pet centre cannot do this. They don't tell you what the SUV mean is on a clinical report. But Andy's message at the end of his talk was, actually, maybe we need to be getting these SUV mean whole-body quantitative PET measures as a new clinical standard of care because the results confirmed what we've seen and presented at ASCO-GU from the therapy study is that uh, the intensity of uptake on your PSMA PET correlates with outcome. So it was a prog- strong prognostic biomarker in the vision trial. So what they did is divided the SCV mean by four quartiles, and if you were in the highest intensity quartile, which was an SUV mean over rounded to 10 which is exactly the same number we came in therapy, all your outcome measures were better. Your PSA response, radiographic PFS, but importantly OS. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the OS difference between the group of patients with the highest PSMA expression and the rest was big. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're now selecting a group of patients who really have much longer survival. Uh, So I think this is another key message, which I'm very keen on, which is, When we identify these patients with the highest PSMA expression, SUV mean above 10, which is about a third of patients that are referred for lutetium PSMA, these patients do much better. So we have a robust predictive prognostic imaging biomarker. And when you're debating carbazitaxel versus lutetium, if you're in this highest group, the answer is very easy. You should definitely give Mm -hmm. lutetium. If you're in the lowest quartile, Actually, it's much more nuanced. You know, there might be newer treatments, better treatments. These are the patients that don't have the durable responses. Yes, all the data still shows that even in the bottom quartile, in vision you do better than the control arm in therapy, you do better than carbazitexel. But the difference is much smaller.
0: And also remembering there are already patients that have been selected into the trial based on some sort of parameters uh, in vision, looser than it was in therapy, so they're already selected in for that uh, criteria. But uh, I know it's a topic you feel uh, very passionately about and some wonderful work has been done in Australia uh, using quantitative measures and using both FTG and PSMA to optimally select patients. So do you think that uh, Andy and colleagues, Philip Kuo I know was very involved in this, uh, that work they presented might help uh, nudge people over the line to say we should be using PSMA a little bit in a little bit of more of a sophisticated way rather than just saying have you got a, one lesion that's greater than liver or whatever to say well look especially when you have competing options do we really need to look very carefully more carefully and go to the effort uh, of doing quantitative assessment and get an SUV mean to try and make sure that at this point in time this is the right therapy for, for our patient think that'll that'll help or will people just say look this this uh, this is too hard it is difficult it's going to add 15 or 20 minutes to every single pet scan you need the, you need it can't be done in every center uh, it's not all automated you're going to need some manual oversight as well as the semi-automated stuff that comes in the software so is it worth pushing people over the line to say yes yeah, we're doing that yeah, we're going to select our patients a bit better and advise them a bit better
3: yeah look I think it is a challenge as of today because most places don't have the software tools to do this and even if they do they may not be reproducible between you know, people within a centre and uh, it's time consuming and we're all busy in the pet centres reporting pet scans all day and to spend an extra 10 to 15 minutes reporting an SUV mean is just not practical in most places. So this is not a parameter that you get as a standard of care in 99% of pet centres around the world at the moment. You know, I think we are probably proud at Peter Mac to say that we do put SUV mean in our clinical reports as a standard of care, but we're an outlier. So I would like to see that become a standard of care. We do need advances. I think we need better software tools to make this quick, reproducible, deep learning algorithms to fully automate this. This is coming. So I think this is the beginning of that quantitative pet revolution. It extends beyond prostate cancer. You know, just before I left to ASCO, Professor Seymour, who's Director of Haematology at Peter Mac, sent me an email saying, can you start reporting metabolic tumour volumes in my lymphoma PET reports as a standard of care because there was a manuscript in JCO reporting similarly that whole body, total body quantitative measures in aggressive lymphoma did much better than the International Prognostic Index, the sort of conventional score, and it was independent, and this was a really robust study. Please start putting this as a clinical standard of care. So there are other tumour types where these quantitative PET parameters are being shown to be robust as well, and... uh, I think it's it's coming, but we're not there yet.
0: And is there, I know we don't use SUV mean obviously to select patients for therapy and for trials. We use SUV max. Um, is it a surrogate? Is there a simple relationship to say that, okay, if your SUV max is over 20, uh, you know, we think that your SUV mean is going to be over 10? Or how you can simplify that for us and say, how do you come up with these inclusion criteria we have in Australian trials for SUV max? Because it is surely based off your experience with what SUV mean tells you.
3: Yeah, so we've got a lot of jargon. We we may have confused people. But just to simplify it, SUV max is the uh, lesion with the hottest uptake. So you can eyeball that maximum intensity rotating pet image, find the darkest metastasis, put a circle around it and get an SUV max. It's very quick and simple, very reproducible. You show it to five pet specialists, everyone comes up with the same SUV max and it's quick, it takes two seconds SUV mean you have to contour all the tumour. How you contour it may be different between centres, but we have a standardised way we did vision and therapy where we take everything with an SUV over three, contour it, exclude all the normal organs. That's very time-consuming. So your SUV mean is taking into account the tumour heterogeneity, all the lesions with high uptake, all the lesions with low uptake. So it is the more of the robust measure. If we wanted to repeat vision or therapy and do it with the best measure, it probably would be SUV mean. But in a randomised trial running across multiple sites, that's just not practical when that software is not available. So your liver threshold or your SUV max threshold is a practical measure to select patients for trials, and it's pretty good. But if you wanted to pick optimal, it may be an SUV mean. And probably if your SUV means is low, we don't know what that number is and it needs future research, then you should have carbazitaxel rather than lutetium. At the lower end of the spectrum, I reckon you're going to do better with carbazi than lutetium. Can, so there's more work to be done.
2: Can I, provide, can I play devil's advocate for a second? So I think... So after Vision came out, when 89% of men were deemed eligible based on PET criteria, there was actually talk around just giving lutetium, even without doing a PET scan, just using it as a, as a drug. So I think most physicians globally are not as smart as Michael and not as astute as Michael and will just look at this vision data and say, well, yes, SUV, max, mean, I don't really understand this. I'll just give it. It's third line. He's had docetaxel. He's had abirater and enzalutamide. Just, just give it. So I think what Michael says is right, but when you actually look in the real in world, world, I wonder whether people in busy clinics who don't have access to all this, maybe some of the software technology, uh, maybe in some some places don't have ready access to um, nuclear medicine facilities that can do PSMA PET, I think in the real world, it'll just get used as a, you know, it would, depending on the on, on regulatory approvals and, and other access issues, insurance. I think particularly in countries like the US, it'll just get it'll get used, and yeah, a piece, piece of my paper will get done. But I don't think SUV mean. While we think it's very important, and it is, I think in a practical in a practical sense, it won't it won't necessarily impact on the way people use it in the real world. That, that's just my cynical view. But I'm happy for someone to someone to tell me otherwise. But I'm just thinking about well,
3: right. what what is the what. R- <laughs> I'm going to question what the real world is. Yeah. Uh, uh, I guess we're all seeking to do the best for our uh, patients no, and optimise no, agree, application. But I think you know there's merit to what you say because this is an additional treatment option and you're going to get everything. You're going to get a novel antiandrogen. Yeah. You're going to get docetaxel. You're going to get enzalutamide. You're going to get lutetium now. You're probably going to get carbazy as well if you're young and fit. Uh, so in a very simple approach, you don't need to think at all. You just go... First line, second line, third line, fourth line. You can counsel patients in the beginning. There's five treatments. When you progress after each one, you're going to get second line, third line. I mean, that's how medical oncology operates in many centres. But then when you come to Peter Mac or a large oncology centre, you get a bit more of a nuanced care. You're going to sequence better. You're going to go, well, what's your intensity of uptake? Yes, let's give you this one first. Let's give you this one Now you've got discordant disease. Look, in my experience, lutetium is just not going to be beneficial. Let's save you all these trips into hospital to have a futile therapy. So I think when you apply the more nuanced uh, care uh, using all the information we have available, you can make better decisions. And I think that does improve outcomes, which is why you get better outcomes when you come to a comprehensive cancer centre and get that higher level of care. So do we want to have real-world... Is that what we want to strive for, kind of just first line, second line, third line, <laughs> or do we want to optimise?
2: I, I agree with you, Michael. I I, I I agree with you. I'm just presenting an alternative view of what can happen in the whatever the real world is. But well, uh, I mean,
1: speaking of the real world, though, one very big concern in the real world is cost.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: right? I mean, how does that play into it? I mean, we can talk a lot about sequencing and in and, and having five treatment options, but surely cost plays a role in, in someone deciding, oh, well, I'm just going to give and PSMA based on vision.
2: Well, it depends on the on the country you're talking about, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, if the if it's if it's uh, approved and in, depending on what country, you're in for example, the US, it's covered through your insurance. I think you're just going to give it. I think in Australia, where we have a single payer system, it's it's different. You know, until it's actually reimbursed, um, you know, reimbursed through uh, our you know single payer system, you can't generally can't access it. Peter Mac obviously has a compassion access program, and there are some other ways of self-funding it um but you're right cost comes into it you know Renu, there's no there's there's no doubt um but that's very that's a challenging discussion because it depends what country you're talking about but um and and michael obviously spoke about this before i can speak about it as well the the, the, pr- the production model obviously varies from you know australia's production model for lutetium made 617 is different to what the, what's done in the u.s um it's a academic versus commercial production but um yeah, no, those are all really, really good yeah. good questions. And I think
1: while it's very exciting that lutetium PSA has been FDA approved, um, you know, again, based on which country you're from, cost still remains a very valid concern. Um, when yeah, because when capital tax is
0: cheap as cheap. chips. Yeah, exactly. It? But Michael, in finishing, uh, uh, two final questions to you about that. One is uh, there is a reimbursement uh, application underway in Australia uh, for lutetium and Can Can you update us a bit on that? Uh, the, There's some information out there in the public domain because this stuff is a... Made publicly available.
3: Um. Yeah, look, the Australasian Association of Nuclear Medicine Specialists have put an application to government to uh, make lutetium PSMA available using a sort of academic model, uh, where it's made in hospital radiopharmacies and administered to patients. Uh, in that application, it's a, it's a kind of agnostic with regards to the ligand. So. Uh, PSMA PET scanning is already approved in Australia. The funding is going to commence th- in July 1, which is seven days away. PSMA PET will be reimbursed uh, nationwide, and that doesn't define should you use gallium PSMA 11 or fluorinated DCF PYL or fluorinated PSMA 1007. The item number is simply for a PSMA PET scan, and it allows the provider to choose which PSMA ligand they use for the PET scan uh, and the way the Association of Nuclear Medicine Specialists has structured the request for PSMA is the same, which opens the door to lutetium and PSMA INT, uh, which is an agent that is used a lot around the world. It's used a lot in Australia. We don't use it much here at Peter Mac. We prefer PSMA 617 thanks to, you know, supply of that peptide by Novartis and their, their support. And that's certainly where the evidence base is. The therapy trial, vision trial, it's all... PSMA 617. I don't think there's a single prospective trial of PSMA INT, but there's extensive clinical experience and lots of retrospective publications and data you know, from dosimetry showing that it looks like we deliver the same amount of radiation to normal tissues and sites of tumour. Uh, so that application would not preclude use of PSMA 617. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, that's going through the government health technology assessment people. I think the bottom line is we want to see PSMA uh, lutetium-funded in Australia, like we have PSMA PET scanning. We've kind of pioneered the technology here in Australia, so it's disappointing to have sort of phase three data and uh, reimbursement in other countries and not have it reimbursed in Australia. So we need uh, Mm access for it in Australia.
0: Uh, and, uh, and I know that Novartis, of course, are, are under a bit of pressure, actually, trying to just deliver uh, to the bigger markets. But uh, hopefully they uh, will support an application here or join that application. But as you say, the key thing for us is we want access uh, for our patients. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, patients do tend to self-fund um, uh, if they can't get access on a trial or on our Compassionate Access Program. And just for listeners out there, that, that is usually around six or 7,000 U.S., I think, uh, per cycle, uh, roughly, just to give you some idea, because I know in the US, um, the, the reimbursement will be like 50,000, 60,000-ish yeah. per cycle. So again, eye-wateringly, different environments yeah. that, I run, that we work exactly. in. But that's the second question I wanted to ask you, Michael. We um, we are hearing there's lots of issues with supply of letitia PSMA. Despite the FDA approval and all that, there are literally people are really struggling to get access. So have, have didn't, was there any discussion about this at ASCO or and we're certainly hearing and seeing stories that it's just very difficult to to get access. It's a production issue.
3: Yeah, look, certainly a subject of corridor conversation. Uh, It's all well to have, you know, phase three data showing a survival benefit, but if it's not accessible easily, uh, that's problematic. So I think it highlights that lutetium PSMA, it's, you know, it's a radiopharmaceutical. It's not a drug. The nuances of administration are, uh, I wouldn't say challenging, but they're different. And it can't be administered in a chemotherapy day unit because you need shielding. Uh, Lutetium 177 emits some gamma. People around are exposed to some radiation. So it needs either nuclear medicine or radiation oncology expertise to administer the treatment. Uh, it's got a short half-life. There's manufacturing challenges. It's not... can't put it in a cardboard box and have it sitting in your pharmacy and in stock ready to give to your patient. You really need to order it. For each individual patient, some analogies to radium-223. Uh, so there's all these complexities, and it really requires a multidisciplinary team. Uh, your medical oncologist is kind of referring on to med or Radonc to do this, uh, or urology, and it, all those systems aren't up and running today in many centres. So there's a lot of education in healthcare implementation of this uh, really new technology, and yeah. there's work to be done. And
1: uh, yeah, definitely some challenges. And there What about future trials? You've got some exciting stuff in the pipeline,
2: haven't you? Uh yeah. There's a l- well, yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on um, within within Australia. Um, I mean, looking at looking at lutetium PSMA. I mean, we're looking at probably two major angles are either bringing treatment um, forward. Um, so we've got uh, upfront PSMA, which is l- looking at the metastatic hormone sensitive space. In addition to dose attacks on ADT, and then of course we've got lutectomy, which is bringing it even further forward the neoadjuvant That's or pre surgical <laughs> um, study. As well. And then the other avenue in the metastatic CRPC space is, um, is combinations. So we have um, EnzaP led by um, Louise Emmett and uh, an up sponsored study in the first line MCRPC setting. And we have a couple of other um, trials, uh, in, well, a number of other trials in this space. Shanine Sandu uh, has uh, LUPARP uh, and um, uh, PRINCE, which are combinations with uh, uh, Olaparib and uh, Pembrolizumab respectively. So they're in the uh, later MCRPC, sti- MCRPC stage. And then we're just about to open or just have opened Lucab, which is our combination study with cabazitaxel. So we're taking the view of cabazitaxel is a very good drug. I think that was my my point (laughs) about about, uh, from therapy, so why not combine it? Um, And we also have a couple of other studies, uh, you know, not too far away in the MSAPC setting as well. So lots of trial activity. I think that's actually one of the things that I think is really great about therapy and vision is not just lutetium PSMA, and the impact it will have on patients, but actually now all the activity that will follow in the radionuclide and theranostic space, I think finally the world has woken up, pharma included, um, as well as academic groups, and there's going to be a lot of activity, I think, now in, in, th- in the theranostic space in prostate cancer. And there may be a better radionuclide or better combinations than, than what we've got right now. We certainly hope so for all of our patients, and the trials will be the answer to doing that. And I think one of the things that Michael and team have done so well with hands up and, and with Peter Mack-sponsored studies is is actually getting prospective trials done. You know, there was so much yeah. data with lutetium from other countries in the, pr- in the retrospective space, but you don't change practice on r- with retrospective studies. And, and that's where, you know, Michael and Anne's up and, and Peter Mack deserve so much credit for, for leading those studies.
3: So I think it's just the beginning of the theranostic yeah. Yeah. revolution. <laughs> We've sort of got the vision and therapy trials now providing evidence that it's, you know, extremely good and useful. And now we're going to combine it, use it earlier and get second-generation compounds.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. It was a really good meeting. I'm sad to have missed it. And really nice to see Theranosics for Prostate Cancer kind of waving the flag for GU Oncology.
3: Yay,
0: exactly. And meetings are back. We've got a couple of good uh, conferences coming up. We'll be reporting live from... the
1: annual conference, USANS, is coming up at the Gold Coast. Yeah, this weekend. We're freezing here in Melbourne, so (laughs) it'll be nice to get some sun in Queensland.
0: And then we're off to EAU.
1: EAU, Amsterdam
0: and we'll post some of my podcasts from there Absolutely. as well but it's, it's nice to be back in studio here Peter Mac lovely to be back with you uh, yeah it's good to be back in my seat a, a and have my microphone back <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah so that's all we have um, time for I hope you enjoyed that folks this never-ending exciting topic of PSMA imaging and theranostics and I, I really enjoyed hearing those post-ASCO perspectives uh, from Michael and Arun's uh, interpretation of that and congrats to all those investigators uh, our colleagues in the US who've done nice work on that and to you and all your team here Michael All right, we'll be back uh, very soon again with another podcast. Uh, Do stay tuned and send us your suggestions for future topics. Take care. Goodbye.